0: Greetings Old Haliburians and members of the wider Halebury community, wherever and whenever you are listening to this From the Archives podcast. This is Keith White from the Class of 62, bringing you the 20th of our regular podcast series, which includes audio material from the Halebury Archives. This month we feature a Founders' Day address given in 2004 by Justice Lex Lazary from the Class of 1966. Lex, the inaugural winner of the OHA medal, is currently a reserve judge in the Criminal Division of the Supreme Court of Victoria, having been appointed to the bench in 2007. Prior to this, Lex acted as defence counsel in several high-profile criminal cases in Australia and overseas, including the case of Andrew Chan and Mayuran Sukumaran, two of the nine Australians convicted of drug trafficking in Bali. In 2007, he was awarded the Law Council of Australia's Inaugural Presidents Medal for his pro bono representation of convicted drug trafficker Van Nguyen in 2005 and for his outstanding work as Independent Legal Observer for Australian Guantanamo Bay detainee David Hicks in 2004 and 2005. Outside of his heavy workload, Lex plays in his own rock band, The Lex Pistols and he has raced Porsche cars for many years. In this address, Lex talks about life at Halebury in the 1960s, before talking about human rights in the world of today.
1: Thank you very much. The principal, staff and students of Halebury, it's a great pleasure for me to be here today to, among other things, mark the start of the 2004 year, and particularly to be involved in this Founders Day assembly. I have to say that as you get older, you understand the value of nostalgia, and There's been a fair level of nostalgia that's passed across that screen in the last few minutes. Not one of the better photographs of me, but nonetheless. One of the main reasons that I'm pleased to be here is very much retrospective, because my achievements as a student of this school were, on any view, and putting it as neutrally as I can, very modest. You won't see my name on any boards which honour sporting or academic achievement, and there are a couple of teachers here this morning uh, who taught me in the 1960s who understand why that is so. So to be standing in this assembly and speaking to this school is for me a great honour and a huge achievement. I began at Halebury in 1960. I was 12 years old and I was in the boarding school Castlefield in Brighton. And since 1960, as you would realise, uh, even those who weren't on this earth in 1960, the school has changed dramatically, as has the world. Halibri borders, like dinosaurs, are now extinct, although some of us still walk the earth with the memory of what it was like. In 1960, as you've heard this morning, D.M. Bradshaw was the headmaster of Halibri, and Frank Northcott, who's here today, was, to the twelve-year-old, starting in 1960, a somewhat fearsome vice-principal. And this property, on which we're presently located, of course was a horse adjustment farm as the records of the school show. Across the road from Halebury and South Road was St Leonard's Presbyterian Ladies College. That was a place that our secret intelligence told us housed female boarders, but that was about the extent of the information we were allowed to have. Access of course to St Leonard's by Halebury boarders was completely out of the question and forbidden. The idea of crossing South Road was a bit like the idea of scaling the Berlin Wall. And the only exceptions really were school dancing classes where we were being taught to dance like our parents. And even on those occasions, if the lighting was a bit dim or the atmosphere was a bit romantic, then there was normally a teacher on morals patrol, armed with a torch, to make sure that things didn't get out of hand. Now, of course, there are girls wearing the Halebur uniform now. That's an interesting sign of the progress of the school. In 1960, as you would have inferred from what you've heard this morning, corporal punishment, particularly in the form of caning, was an accepted method of discipline at Halenbury and elsewhere, and I received my share. Some more merciful boarding school teachers used a bedroom slipper instead of a cane, because at least it looked as though pain was being inflicted, it made a lot of noise, but the pain was significantly less, and I must say that those of you who are now students of this school are very lucky to have missed that era. The abolition of that form of punishment was a, another great step forward. In 1960, Harlebury was a relatively new and small member of the Associated Public Schools. To me, mainly as an observer, because I was certainly not a school sporting champion, the lack of resources and the school's inexperience showed significantly in the school's sporting performance. I can remember that we were, as the First 18 or the First 11, regularly outclassed, almost to the point of embarrassment on a few occasions, by schools like Scotch, Melbourne Grammar and Xavier. Until Keysborough was functional, Hallaby First 18 played football down at the Beach Road Oval in Sandringham. And when I first started at school, the First 11 played their cricket matches on the main oval at South Road. Now, if you've seen the main oval at South Road, you'll understand that scores would normally be expected to be pretty high because it's a pretty small oval. But that changed, and after a while, uh, particularly uh, as sport was being played out here and as this school began to develop, the school started to develop in a sporting as well as in other ways. And as you've heard this morning, in 1965, the school won its first football premiership. And I have to say, I can't resist it, that the next year, with Old Haliburian Roger Head on board, St Kilda won its first and only VFL AFL premiership. Now, as I see it, Halebury is of course now a sporting power. Even in amateur football, the old Haleburians for which I played for a few seasons in C and D grade are now power in A grade in the Victorian Amateur Football Association, and uh, the whole development of the school and the school's sporting and academic performances has been outstanding. As part of my great sporting regime, I reluctantly took part in the training that was held every morning in the boarding school at 7am when we were sent for a run all over East Brighton. Some of us had the presence of mind to take some coins so that we could catch a bus for the last couple of miles. The run was followed by a cold shower, even in the winter, and that was apparently for the dubious benefit of being able to say that Rendell House had never lost a school cross-country competition for which we were apparently training. For my part, I would have preferred to have stayed in bed a bit longer, even in the boarding school, and lose a few cross-countries. To our regular embarrassment, on hot Sunday nights in February and March in the early 1960s, when it was 36 degrees or in those days 100 degrees or more, we as boarders were required to put on our suits, our school suits, and en masse go for an evening walk, presumably to digest the delightful cuisine of the boarding school, and we walked around the beaches of Brighton Beach and Hampton, In the searing heat to the somewhat abusive amusement of the local people. It must have looked absolutely ridiculous. But it was part of the regime, it was part of the exercise that it was necessary for us to have. And indeed in those early years some of that abuse came from a a local criminal identity in Hampton who went under the name of Leo. You could tell that Leo was an important man in the street gangs of Hampton in the 1960s because his name was carved in the footpath in Hampton Street and he and some of his mates took great pleasure in terrorising young Hailbury boarders usually on the train from the city to Hampton Station and usually with a flick knife after we were coming back on a Sunday night for example from a weekend of freedom from the boarding school. Times perhaps have changed dramatically and I've often wondered what had happened to Leo. Australia in the 1960s and in 1960 in particular was a very different country. In 1960 Robert Menzies was Australian Prime Minister, indeed I was thinking as I was watching those slides he was Prime Minister for a very long time. In 1960 there was no talk of Republic and even in those days people who'd lived all their lives in Australia still talked about going home to England. So Australia is a very different place in uh, 2004 from 1960. The school of course has moved to the front of the pack, this school has moved to the front of the pack in educational innovation and you're very lucky to be part of it. As teenagers in the early 1960s we were also lucky, but we were different. We enjoyed much less autonomy and almost no sophistication. And yet in the six years that I spent at Halibri between 1960 and 1966 I saw some dramatic change because the 1960s was the era in which social attitudes and relationships between young people and their older parents developed and changed. And the attitudes of teachers in, in the 1960s changed. Teachers whose benefits on their students is regularly underestimated. Certainly it was underestimated by me but I have to say it's terrific to see again some of the people who've been mentioned this morning who had some significant contact with me, not always pleasant but who are still maintaining a connection with the school. And I refer of course to people like Frank Northcott, Bill Truman, Jim Brown, Brian Clark and some others. What I liked about Harlebury in the 1960s is that we were the underdog within the Associated Public Schools. And that developed a spirit in all of us in those days which I've never forgotten and I suspect has not been dampened by the success of the school. For me the biggest change was to have gone from mediocre school student to a career which has now lasted over 30 years as a criminal lawyer via Monash University. And in a sense I was also something of an underdog and I think if you would told someone like Bill Truman in 1960 or 61 that I was going to wind up a 30 year lawyer, he would have perhaps laughed in your face. It wasn't looking good in those early years. 30 years in the criminal law has taught me a number of things of course, but the primary thing that I want to share with you about it is that communities like ours are judged by how they treat their underdogs, their real underdogs. In the last 44 years, unlike Halebury, the rest of the world has not changed, perhaps and improved nearly enough. And you, as the youth of the time, have a chance to make a difference, have a chance to be involved in the things that do make a difference, and one of those areas which is dear to me as a criminal lawyer is the protection of individual human rights. History tells us that man's appalling inhumanity to man has continued in the modern era. According to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. In World War II, something of the order of 50 million people were killed or died. It is believed that since the signing of the United Nations Charter at the end of that war, after that war, a further 100 million people have died in a variety of conflicts, and they continue almost as we speak. You only have to turn on your television. Back in the 1960s Australia and the United States were entangled in a war in Vietnam. Now Australia and the United States are entangled in Iraq. This time fortunately no Australians have been killed, but Americans and Iraqis are dying daily. 50 people died I think on Tuesday in a bomb blast and yesterday another 20 or 30. And the details of the horror of life and death under the regime of Saddam Hussein await his trial whenever that occurs. Throughout the post-war period, at least since the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, the Middle East has violently consumed human life, a great deal of it innocent of any wrongdoing. Around the world there have been hundreds of other conflicts in which hundreds of thousands of people have died. For example in the late 1980s and early 1990s 850,000 people died in Rwanda. So in many respects in this enlightened global village of the 21st century in which you are taking part, individual human rights and the basic human right to life have gone backwards and are being lost in what I often think are greedy political power plays and in some cases, and indeed often, in some fanatical religious cause. You're also now coping with a world in which the population is continuing to explode, hunger and poverty likewise, and diseases like HIV, AIDS are spiralling. And since the 11th of September 2001, and the war on terror as it's been described, I think we are now more frightened than we've ever been. You as young people in the early part of the 21st century have a great deal more knowledge to cope with than we did in the 1960s. In 1960 the most frightening force I knew was Frank Northcote. In 1960 Australia as a country was frightened by the Soviet Union and communist China. Now in 2004 we're frightened by terrorists, understandably so, religious fundamentalists. And while the fears are justifiable and understandable, fear corrodes people's peace of mind, attempts us collectively to give way to incremental erosions of individual rights in the cause of our safety. You, as the youth of today and the leaders of tomorrow, in my view, have to be vigilant about your world as best you can and the manner in which human rights are protected. There are examples, and I don't mean to be political about this, but there are examples that you can see of this. In the United States, which is our greatest political ally, There are hundreds of people interned in Guantanamo Bay for their third year without trial and facing what may or may not appear to be an unjust process. The declaration to which I referred earlier requires that no one shall be subject to arbitrary arrest, detention or exile. In the cause of attempting to do something about the violation of human rights and the fundamental right to life, the United Nations established an International Criminal Court, the purpose of which was to bring the perpetrators of war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity. To justice. To protect itself the US refuses to support it. Here in Australia we can see the way things are changing, in the law things are changing. ASIO has been given the powers to hold people in custody for the period of a week simply because it is believed they might have information about terrorism. In our near Asian neighbors many countries still maintain a death penalty which mercifully we abolished many years ago as a punishment for crime because they're frightened that if they don't their countries will be overrun by drug traffickers, and yet, at the same time, the magnitude of the narcotic drug trade continues to grow dramatically. So protection from terrorism and crime on the one hand, and protection of individual human rights on the other, is a difficult balance with which we seem to be struggling, and it's a balance with which you will have to struggle increasingly as the years go by. For those of you so inclined to be involved in the world and these difficult problems, there's a great deal of work to be done. It is only now really that people are starting to understand the importance of human rights, even in fortunate countries like this where we maintain an important and well preserved democratic process. I urge you to be on your guard against the erosion of individual human rights and to understand that the protection of the underdog and the person less fortunate and indeed the person least desirable in the community is a standard by which the community will be judged. Individual protection of human rights remains, I think, one of the most important fields that somebody can become involved in. For me as a lawyer, starting in my career in the early 1970s, all I wanted to do was get on the ladder of opportunity, which is a phase which is being regularly used these days, and climb it as best I could, and that meant magistrates' courts, county court trials, ultimately perhaps uh, some big cases in the Supreme Court, that happened. And to me, even then, the world was a distant place. It was a long way away. When you get on an aeroplane in Melbourne you fly to Los Angeles or you fly to London, you understand how far we are from the rest of the world. And yet, because of the quality of this country and because of the quality of people like you coming out of quality schools like this, you're needed to do work that is important to the future of humanity. And I commend it to you, for those of you who are, perhaps have the instinct or the spirit to do it, and as you move away from this school, at least be careful about giving up hard won freedoms. Never give up your individuality and never ever give up your right to dissent. Thank you very much. Hmm,
0: you covered a lot of ground there, Lex. I remember that speech. I had only been in archives a couple of years and this was my first Founders' Day presentation. The human rights issues you raise are even more relevant in current times, aren't they? Now, to take us out, we go back to 1979 and the annual tattoo. The item is the Policeman's Chorus from the Pirates of Penzance. This was performed by School Prefects of the Year and is introduced by Prefect Dean Alan Craig.
2: Hi, everyone. Dean Alan Craig here from the class of 1979. It's my great pleasure to introduce today's classic audio archive from the 1979 Halebury tattoo a mere 41 years ago. Theatrical performances in those days were generally held in the gymnasium at Keysborough, as there was no Aikman Hall at the time, although that particular year we had moved up to the Robert Blackwood Hall at Monash Uni for the tattoo. Michael Aikman was the headmaster in just his sixth year at the school, and he was a very keen supporter of the arts, especially musical theatre, which he loved. The performance you're about to hear is The Policeman's Song, from the Gilbert and Sullivan musical Pirates of Penzance. It was Michael Aikman's idea to have all the school prefects performing the song, even though many had no musical or theatrical background. Out we came in our English Bobby's uniforms, and we were ably led by Mark Bradley, who sings the solo. I hope you enjoy this performance. I know I did.
3: When a felon's not engaged in his employment. His employment. For frustrating his annoyance, little plans. Little plans. The capacity for innocent enjoyment, enjoyment, is just as great as any honest man. Honest man. Feelings we with difficulty smother. smother. When constabulary duties to be done, to to be be done. oh take one consideration with another. with another. A policeman's lot is not a happy one. Oh, when constabulary duties to be done, to be done, our policeman's a lot is not a happy one. Surprising burglar's not a burgling When the cutthroat isn't occupied in crime crime. He he loves to hear the little brooker gurgling -gurgling. And listen to the merry village chime chime. When the cost has finished jumping on on his mother loves to lie a basking in the sun In the sun Oh, take one consideration with another With another. Our policeman's lot is not a happy one Oh, when you can stand Your very duties to be done To be done Our policeman's lot is not a happy one Not a, ha- a happy one Not a, ha- a happy, one, not a ha- a happy
0: Nice work, boys, and thanks for that great intro, Dean. Nice to hear from someone who was there. Well, that's it for this 20th From the Archives podcast. The next episode should be coming your way in September. Please remember that your feedback is what keeps us going. So if you've got a comment to make or a story you'd like to tell, please get in touch. This is Keith White signing off From the Archives, Series 1, Episode 20, August 2020. Thanks for listening.